1: Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare.
2: We're tiptoeing ever closer to Christmas, and a lot of us might be knee-deep in our festive traditions by this point. Perhaps you have your tree up already and your presents are wrapped. Maybe you have an advent calendar or a wreath on the go. Maybe you're planning what to make for a blowout Christmas feast featuring all of your family favorites. I absolutely love a tradition myself, but what if I told you that there are even weirder and more wonderful ways of marking the holidays that you might never have considered yet? I'm Dr. Eleanor Yanaga. And today on Gone Medieval from History Hit, I'm joined by my wonderful co-host, Matt Lewis, to talk weird medieval Christmas traditions. Some, like football, gift-giving, or the Yule Log, you might recognize in theory, but not in practice. While others, like having a procession to celebrate finding a duck in a drain, are a little bit more out there. All of these celebrations allow us to consider how the subversion of social hierarchy plays a major part in pre-modern celebration why celebration is a really practical way to fill time in winter and how we can learn a lot about societies by the way that they party. So grab a festive drink and a mince pie because Matt and I are ready to get serious about the silly season. Matt, thanks so much for coming on on a Tuesday, you legend. It's great to be at the beginning of a week instead of the back end. Mm. (laughs) Oh yeah, we're we're very bright and bushy-tailed over here. I mean, I suppose... As beginning of the week's go, this is a delightful thing to talk about, because we're going in for some fun Christmas traditions today, which I love. But it's quite funny because for medieval people, we're not at Christmas yet, right? We're still very deeply mired in what they would call Advent, which is very sternly, not Christmas. Very serious.
1: (laughs) No partying. Advent calendars, absolutely not.
2: Funnily enough, I have to do a lot of of work about Advent because Advent's the time of year you contemplate the end of the universe. So, as all the dark is kind of encroaching and everything, Advent is when you sit around and think about the fact that the world is going to end. And then you go into Christmas where you celebrate the birth of Christ and the fact that he's going to come save us all at the end of the world and everyone is born again. Tra la 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 la. So, it's quite funny because they're very serious and then they get married. So I think the only thing we share is that Advent
1: is seen as the build-up to the big day. We see it very much as an excuse to eat chocolate, a bit of chocolate every day. I think if you had a medieval Advent calendar, it's going to be a slice of raw turnip or something, isn't it? It's definitely not a treat that you're getting out of this Advent calendar because you have to think about fasting and how serious life is and how the universe could end. We might get Jesus' birthday. We might not make it that far.
2: Which is quite funny too, because imagine fasting in this level of darkness maybe I'm only speaking for myself, but when the dark starts drawing in, you know, I'm making a soup. I've got an excuse to eat porridge for breakfast, things like this.
1: It's comfort food weather, isn't it? I had shepherd's pie for tea last night because it's comfort food weather and you just want to fill your belly up and sit in front of the fire.
2: But I suppose I find it weird that they would do this, but on the other hand, it does mean that when you get to Christmas, it's a blowout, right? But it's also, we still do it at Easter, don't we? We still have Lent going up to Easter, which we still view as the very serious
1: time when you fast, you think about all sorts of things. We've just kind of bent the one before Christmas. We don't do it the way they used to do it anymore. We still do it Easter, but we just don't do it at Christmas anymore.
2: Which is quite funny because for us, Christmas is so important now. You know, I think that for a lot of people, if they are not particularly religious, for them, Christmas is sort of the holiday. Of the year, which is not how medieval people would have thought about it. They would have really been focused on Easter. But then at the same time, for medieval people, Christmas is 12 days. And now we talk about, I get wound up. I'm a big nerd every year. And when people will start talking about the 12 days of Christmas before Christmas Day, I just get right on my high horse immediately because I'm a, a real stickler for celebrating the 12 days of Christmas as a medieval person would, starting on the 25th and then going through into January and then into Epiphany.
1: Yeah, and I think it helps at this time of year as well. We've got to think about they had very short days, not much daylight, not much need for farm work going on. So they've actually got a bit of time. It's a bit of a holiday. You can take 12 days to have a party.
2: And they sure did, which is one of the things that I really love. And I guess that this kind of brings us to the first weird Christmas tradition that I wanted to talk about, which is Epiphany. So Epiphany is kind of the end of the 12 days of Christmas, right? So a lot of people will have heard the term Twelfth Night, like what the Shakespeare play was named after. And that is kind of like Epiphany Eve. And what Epiphany is celebrating is when the Magi, the three wise men, show up to the manger and see Jesus. That doesn't happen. On Christmas Eve, it does not happen on Christmas. Jesus is already kicking around the shop, (laughs) according to everyone. And then the kings show up and the kings, of course, bring these fabulous presents, gold, frankincense and myrrh, the most wonderful things that anyone in the ancient period could think to bring to someone. Yeah,
1: they're not crashing the labour manger to be there for the birth.
2: Which is quite funny. (laughs) You know, people kind of forget about that. It's like, yeah, probably they weren't really like bumping in on the childbirth end of things. But so the epiphany thing is interesting because you get all kinds of different traditions that are happening as a result of it. So the reason, for example, that Twelfth Night is called Twelfth Night is that it was ordered for the revel on the last night for court in England. So that's fantastic. It shows you the sort of things that people are doing. Also, this is where we get the tradition of gift giving at Christmas so because if the three wise men give Jesus gifts so this was the day that if you're going to give presents away you did and interestingly that still does hold true in certain places so for example in Spain you still count epiphany or sometimes they say the feast of the three kings as the number one gift giving holiday so Christmas day itself they still celebrate that but that's a little bit more for going to mass seeing your family having a meal the present blowout, that's a totally different day.
1: Yeah. And I think if I'm right, the Eastern Orthodox Church, they kind of celebrate it a little bit later as well, the 19th, because they have Christmas Day on the 6th of January, but they celebrate it on the 19th and they consider it the commemoration of the baptism of Jesus. So lots of the Eastern Orthodox Church festivals relate to water, to water in the home, water for people, blessing of houses and blessings of people. So it means slightly different things in different bits of the church too as well, which is not unusual. The church is not very good at deciding what things definitely mean.
2: Yeah. And I think that there's also always a delight to have a differentiation between the Orthodox church and the Catholic church. I mean, which we see the, in Eastern, especially with the movable feasts, those can really skip around the shop. But yeah, Christmas is absolutely one of those things. But I also am really interested in some of the local traditions that crop up around this because Matt, have you heard of women's Christmas? No. No. Why do women get their own Christmas? I'm going to be all manly about this. How can women get their own Christmas? (laughs) Well, because I'm worth it, that's the answer. But this is a big thing, particularly a big in Irish culture. So shout out to all my aunties and, you know, a little more commonly in kind of Western Ireland, more particularly. But the idea of women's Christmas is latching onto the topsy-turvy things that are sometimes traditional at Christmas. And the idea is that women's Christmas would be a day when the men would do the dishes or look after the kids or maybe make dinner.
1: Whoa, whoa, for a whole day in the year? A
2: whole day. I mean, if you can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) Also, sometimes people would say, oh, it's called Women's Christmas because you sort of also change up the food that you would eat. So whereas you might be expecting to see on Christmas Day things traditionally, like beef or pork products, that sort of thing. For Women's Christmas, you might have a goose, so more poultry things, things that are associated with the feminine poultry. You know, birds are all women, duh, obviously. You would see that come up. And also, you know, there's a little bit more of an emphasis on cakes or sweets. And these sort of things. So Victorians would kind of explain it thusly. But now, Women's Christmas, a lot of time, it means the girls go down pub, which I think we could all get together and celebrate. I think it's a really beautiful tradition. <laughs> what pub are you going to be in on Women's Christmas? I'm Unfortunately, I don't think that I'm even going to be in the UK. So I'm stymied. I'm going to be in a conference working. Can you imagine? Ugh. Oh, there's got to be a bar somewhere nearby. Catch a girl in the hotel bar. Bad plan. I did read one. So I was
1: looking around about Epiphany traditions. And I did read one and I couldn't quite work out how far back it goes. It seems to suggest it's medieval, but it used to be that you chalk the doors on your house. So, and it says the pattern goes, you do the first two numbers of the year. So we do 20 and then you do across a C, across an M, across a B, across, and then the last digits of the year. And the, the idea was that that C, M and B either, because the church isn't great at telling you exactly what things mean, either stands for the names of the three magi, so Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar, or it's part of a blessing, a Latin version of may Christ bless this house kind of thing. So, And that seems like a quite a nice, you know, marking the moment and inviting Jesus into your house on his birthday to bless you.
2: This is a really big, still in a lot of Catholic cultures as well, Oftentimes, you will see this if you go places like, for example, it's around a lot in Vienna. If you go to Austria, you'll see this over people's doors a lot. Or here in England, if you go to Walsingham, which is a really big kind of Catholic town. In a normal way, I go to Walsingham to see the cool medieval things and take pictures of adorable little medieval little houses. And I noticed so many of those having being up. But yeah, I think that's a great little epiphany tradition. I get really excited when I see those. Yeah, I don't think I've ever seen one. Really? I obviously need to go somewhere where I can see them. You know, you need to show up in Bavaria or something like that. You need to find like a Catholic hotbed, I think, because this is still going on. (laughs) I think that it's interesting because there are so many Epiphany traditions that are still kind of hanging around, but we've just sort of discarded it completely. You know, everyone's back at work and frowning. Yeah, I think that's it. We
1: have so much focus on the 25th and 26th of December now. And then, like you say, we don't have that kind of 12 days of not much work to do. So nothing better to do than go down the pub every day. Whereas medieval people were building up towards Epiphany. We're all back at work and it's all, Christmas is forgotten and we're all grumbling about how long it is till January payday now.
2: Yeah, you know what? I firmly believe that we should bring back women's Christmas at the very least because, A, good excuse to go out. To the pub and B, you know our pubs need us more than ever in January. A pub is for life, not just for Christmas, Matt. Do your bit for the economy and have a women's Christmas. That's right. So, what are some of your favorite weird Christmas traditions, Matt? I'm just going to go in hard on
1: the weirdest one that I found. Okay, Mallard Night, which doesn't seem to have too much to do with Christmas, except that it's celebrated on the 14th of January and is related to all of this. So, apparently, this is a tradition that goes on at All Souls College in Oxford which is one of the most prestigious colleges at Oxford they don't have any students at All Souls they only admit fellows the people at All Souls College are some of the brightest minds in Britain but every year they celebrate the discovery of a mallard in a drain and it's a cause for a big party and the first year of every century so last in 2001 before that 1901 1801 they have a humongous feast And they put on this big display where they all chase a Mallard around the quad, carrying a guy who is designated as Lord Mallard in a sedan chair while he kind of whoops and calls for them to do more laps until they can't carry him anymore. And apparently until 1901, before that, it was a live Mallard that they used to chase. In 1901, they changed it to a dead stuffed one. And in 2001, they replaced it with a wooden carving on the end of a pole that they now chase around the quad at All Souls College.
2: Normal. <laughs> Absolutely. I
1: mean, you know, who are we to question some of the finest minds in Britain and what they do in their spare time over Christmas? But apparently this comes from the foundation of All Souls College, when Henry Chichely, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury in 1437, wanted to found a college, didn't know where to put it, and he apparently received a vision that told him that he needed to situate this on the high street, on one of the corners, and that if he went down there, he would find a mallard in a drain that was trapped, and that should be the location on which he would site his college. And apparently, true to form, Henry Chitchley went down the high street of Oxford, found on the corner of Cat Street, and he found... Now, I assume this word is a medieval word for, like, whopping incredibly large, but I think we should bring it back because the manuscript describes him finding a schwapping mallard (laughs) that was stuck in the sewer. And this was supposed to be a sign that the college would thrive if Henley Chitchley built it on this location. So every year since 1437, they celebrate this. All Souls crest involves a mallard. Apparently, if you go there, I haven't been there. Apparently, if you go there, there are carvings and pictures of mallards all over the college. According to one thing that I read, I don't know how true it is, They have a landline telephone in the shape of a mallard. So if you phone them, they answer the mallard.
2: Now I want a mallard phone. That's not fair.
1: (laughs) And they have this song that they sing while they celebrate mallard night about how wonderful mallards are and how they're the greatest birds that history has ever known.
2: Okay. Everything about this is delightfully bonkers and harmless, I would argue. So that's great. But... Can we talk about the specificity of this vision? I mean, just getting beamed that there's a mallard in the drain somewhere. I mean, it's the oddest thing to wake up and claim you've had as a vision. You know, Christ came to me in the
1: night, an angel visited me in my sleep and told me I'd find a duck.
2: And then not only, Christ was like, hold the phone, we got to get the duck message out there, A. And B, once he finds the duck, that's how you know this college is about to be good. Like, what, what is the link? between finding a duck and a really good institution of learning. I have no idea. I literally, I found this and I
1: assumed it was a joke. But the more I've read, it's very clearly the entire basis for the existence of All Souls College.
2: You know, good for them, frankly. A little bit more silliness out of Oxford is never a bad thing, I think. A little less frown and a little more chasing a duck on a stick around. That's what I say.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, the song is bonkers that they sing and it's got one, two, three, four, five, six verses of the song that they sing while they parade the stuck around. If anyone at All Souls is listening, I'm sorry, we're not really laughing at you. Yeah, you
2: know, if anyone at All Souls is listening, we're asking for an invite. That's what's happening. So, you know, keep that under your hat as it were. But I think that these things are always quite nice. You know, I like any weird tradition like that that is still happening in whatever guise. But I have to be honest with you, Matt, I don't quite get it. But maybe that makes it better. Maybe that's better, right? Does it have to have a meaning? <laughs> you know, a meaning is something that humans simply ascribe after the fact. That's okay.
0: Small details are big surfaces. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
2: Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Janaga. Okay, that's a harmless tradition. I guess I've come up with another slightly more harmful one, which is uh, the football, Matt. The football.
1: I mean, today, Christmas and football is fairly synonymous. You know, I'm a Wolves fan for my many sins, and we are playing on Christmas Eve this year. We've been lumbered with a Christmas Eve fixture for the first time in decades, which everybody is deeply unhappy about. But we're well versed in the kind of Boxing Day football fixtures. So we're used to associating Christmas and football, I think but maybe not the same kind of football as the medieval world did.
2: Yes, you're bang on there in that medieval football. Well, it seems to be a bit more of a wrestling match in which a ball is present.
1: I got a strong feeling that medieval football is basically a middle age equivalent of The Purge. One day of completely allowable violence, you can do whatever you want, claim that it's part of a football match, And, you know, just get out of your system in a day.
2: Well, interestingly, we have a kind of Oxbridge connection here, you know, so Mallard night is gentle, but one of the big things that used to happen is for football games at both Oxford and Cambridge, they would turn the teams into sort of the town and the gown. So it was an opportunity for everyone in the town who was annoyed by the students who were always unruly to essentially beat them up if they (laughs) felt like it. Of course, vice versa also is true. But I suppose we I should step back and kind of explain slightly a bit about what we understand the football rules to have been, which is that somewhere in a town, and it usually takes place in a town quite often on a high street, you kind of establish where two goals are. And it might just be the windows of varying buildings, or it might be that you need to get things onto a church stoop or things of this nature. And essentially, the rules are that you can get the ball there but any means provided that it does not result in murder or manslaughter and i mean you know rules are forbidden <laughs> yeah, there, i mean rather a lot of manslaughter happens a lot of what we know about medieval football comes from the fact that people just end up dead all the time and that it gets related to the town constables and that sort of things and you know we have references to football being played at least from bead so the Venerable Bede in the eighth century wrote about the fact that people were playing ball in one of his books, which is De Temporum Ratione. So we know that certainly this is kind of around the shop. We also know that in Wales in the ninth century, from the Historia Brittonum, we have references to groups of boys playing ball. So we know that this is kind of out and about in the shops. And now. It still continues to happen here in the UK, especially up in Scotland, where it is, of course, just called the Fitbah. And it does continue also in a lot of different places, oftentimes for Shrovetide or Pentecost. It'll happen around Easter quite often. But we keep these religious days or these religious festivals as the hallmark of this particular medieval football. You know, people played football on the continent as well. I'm not saying that they don't, but these particular rituals around it do seem to be quite British in a number of ways.
1: Yeah. And I think when you understand exactly what medieval football was, it maybe makes more sense that some monarchs were quite keen to ban it. We often hear about, you know, football was banned as the most outrageous thing. And essentially, they're trying to stop you having fun. But medieval football wasn't necessarily all that much fun. Especially if you were on the receiving end.
2: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. You know, it is quite funny because it seems to be one of these tests to a certain extent of what are the limitations of varying social stripes. So, for example, in London, when they played football, we have a description that comes from the 12th century from the Descriptio Nobilissimi Civitatis Lundione. There you go. And they say that after lunch, all the youth of the city go out into the fields to take part in a ball game. The students of each school have their own ball. The workers from each city craft are also carrying their balls. So that will be people from the varying guilds. Older citizens... Fathers and wealthy citizens come on horseback to watch their juniors competing and to relive their own youth vicariously.
1: So even then, you had the dads on the sideline you know, giving their tenpence worth. It, yeah,
2: you can see that their inner passions are aroused as they watch the action and get caught up in the fun being had by the carefree adolescents. Now, having said that, the carefree adolescents are absolutely beating each other up. It's a free for all. <laughs> They've all got their ball and they're trying to get it over to a varying guild house or a varying school in order to score these points. So it's part wrestling, part ball game. And there is some evidence which says that they are supposed to be kind of like kicking the ball as opposed to carrying it. But some versions we do know involve kind of carrying it. But there are certain things where, for example, Chaucer refers to balls being kicked under feet. And things like that. So we do think that perhaps it is a little bit like our football today. I mean, if our football today was massively violent and involved the entire town.
1: Yeah. I'd imagine there was less kind of dramatic faking of injuries <laughs> in medieval football, because it really, really would have hurt if somebody just wanted to catch you on across the face.
2: Can you imagine how that would go down? We're like, yeah, you got hurt. That's the point. You know, and it's much more about showing that one is a hard man, I suppose. So it's funny because we do think that there is some kicking involved, But for the most part, it is a bit more like, I don't know, I suppose rugby, if there were no rules. Yeah, absolutely.
1: I mean, yeah, there's several times it gets banned. Edward III banned it, Richard II banned it, James III of Scotland banned it. Um, And the first record that I could find of what sounds like a modern game of football comes from the 15th century. So Henry VI kind of reign, and this is in Nottinghamshire. Amongst the manuscripts, it was a set of manuscripts that were compiled later in the century around the miracles of Henry VI to prove how great he was. Weird that they include the rules of football in trying to make Henry VI a saint. But this account kind of says this was describes it as exclusively a kicking game. So, as you mentioned, other things talk about potentially carrying the ball, throwing it, sometimes hitting it with a stick. So, a little bit like hockey, maybe. But this is the first time that calls it an exclusively kicking game. It has the first description of dribbling. So it says, the game at which they had met for for common recreation is called by some the football game. It is one in which young men in country sport propel a huge ball, not by throwing it into the air, but by striking it and rolling it along the ground. And that not with their hands, but with their feet kicking in opposite directions. So it kind of gives us the rough layout of a football pitch. It says the boundaries have been marked and the game was started. So we have the kind of the beginnings there of a football pitch and football games being played to what we might equate to more modern football rules as early as kind of 500 years ago.
2: And I think that that's quite interesting because it's so omnipresent, I think, in all of our lives now, football, that I think there's this sort of association with it. Everyone assumes, oh yeah, it's an old game. We've been playing it for all this time. But, you know, when we look at these quite old references to it. It does just seem like this is the purge. It's just an excuse to punch a student, which, you know, God bless them. I'm glad they're having a nice time. But it is interesting that over the course of a couple hundred years, you do see something that starts to resemble what we think of as football.
1: And it's strange how it morphs so that by the time we get to the Victorian era, it's this idea of almost a gentleman's game with very strict rules. And it's almost become a non-contact sport. It's so far... Removed from what it used to be. And I think sometimes we have this vision of football only starting in the mid 19th century because we don't associate it with this long birth from this violent sport that starts off as absolute chaos, but does become slowly refined through the medieval period. So by the time we get to the 15th century, it has rules that we would recognize as football today.
2: And I think that this is an important lesson because people tend to think that inventions or social practices kind of leap into the world fully formed. It's football and everyone knows the rules and we have established that there are goals here and there and you can't touch it with your hands. You know, no, this is something that gets refined and that people put forward over a period of time until you get down to just a game. And, you know, I suppose this also reflects social attitudes changing more generally because maybe people dying eventually was considered a bit much. Perhaps it was considered less acceptable to just beat up the members of a guild, if you didn't like them, you know, and there's this sort of winnowing down process of saying, right, well, let's turn this into just a game as opposed to a brawl that we are legitimizing through saying the word game.
1: <laughs> yeah. Although I think to some extent it plays into that idea that medieval people were aware that especially young men could have a lot of pent up energy and aggression, that it's best to let them get out. You know, if they're not going fighting, in france somewhere let's just let them play football and beat each other up for the day
2: it's a great way to get the young men out of your hair and perhaps on top of each other but you know it is interesting how many young men die as a result of it there are people who in the 13th century we have records of a young man dying in northumberland because he quote-unquote ran into an opposing player's dagger which is an interesting way of putting it you know it sounds like fighting with your younger siblings and saying i'm just going to kick the air
1: Yeah, it's like Bart Simpson standing in the doorway, isn't it, and flailing his arms. He's like, I'm just standing here doing this. If you run into my fist, it's your fault. I'm just running around the football pitch with a knife out. You know, if you get stabbed, whose fault is it?
2: And hilariously, the reason why the fact that this story with this young man dying because he ran into a knife is considered noteworthy is because it talks about kicking the ball in it somewhere as well. And everyone goes, oh, oh, there you go. It's a reference from 1280, and we know that they were kicking the ball. You know, the death isn't the notable thing here. The death is the reference to some people kicking the balls far over the fields. And that's why everyone went, oh, wow. I sometimes wonder if historians have slightly odd priorities. Not me. No, surely.
1: <laughs> no, no. Not us. No, obviously not. No, never. Should we move on to another one that I wanted to mention?
2: Oh, yes. Do hit me, Matt. I mean, I could. I could
1: hit you literally with a yule log. I'm going to talk about yule logs next. Hey! Because there's something else we still associate with Christmas today. Mm -hmm. There's a reason that lots of our Christmas cakes look like logs. There's a reason we talk about the Yule log. I mean, it's probably a pagan tradition as much as it's a medieval Christmas tradition. But it's another fascinating one to chart how it becomes absorbed into what we think about a Christian Christmas. And essentially, it's more of a Northern European thing. So much more Norse, I guess. It's almost a Viking tradition and plays into the... More of a preoccupation in the north of Europe with Christmas than Easter. So I think Easter is the main festival in the south of Europe, mainly in Italy and all that kind of thing. As you get further north, there's more of an emphasis on Christmas, perhaps because winter is harder and worse and more difficult to endure. And the Yule log is an interesting one. The bit I love about it the most is that obviously the idea is you start your Christmas fire with last year's Yule log. It's a lovely idea there of continuity and all of that kind of thing. But then you get your next Yule log, which could be a whole tree. And you drag it into the house and you plonk the end of it in the fire and then you slowly feed it in as it burns. So you've got the rest of this tree across your living room while one end of it is on fire. I mean, if health and safety ever saw this, we think the Victorians were nuts for putting live candles on Christmas trees and the fire hazard that that was. Medieval folk go one better, they just literally set fire to the tree in
2: their house. It seems like madness. I mean, it's warm. Do you want it that warm? (laughs) (laughs) Seems a little warm. Seems a little overzealous, you know. I mean, I know also that by the time we get to kind of the 17th century, there's also an attendant tradition, especially in England, of having Christmas candles as well. And you get two really big candles, maybe colored, if your budget can stretch to that. And the youngest person in the family or the household takes the candles and lights them on the Yule log. (laughs) then you pop those on the table and they're not allowed to be blown out until they burnt out. So there's rather a lot of introducing fire that shouldn't be extinguished to varying parts of the house, which, you know, it's interesting as a choice, I would say.
1: Yeah. And it's almost like a dangerous extreme version of the Advent candle that we might have today, where, you know, the idea is you keep it burning throughout the period but you have to also judge it so that you keep enough of your Yule log to store for next year, because next year you've got to light your next Yule fire with that Yule log. But it's interesting that it plays into this whole idea of bringing kind of greenery into the house, of perhaps new life coming from old, things being reborn. That's what you're hoping for by the time you get to December in the middle of winter. You're hoping to look forward to spring and new birth and things coming again. There's an idea there of continuity. So last year's fire is starting, this year's fire to keep your family warm. There's that kind of bringing nature into the home. You know, we talk a lot today about having, you know, bringing the garden into the house. They're going one step further They're just dragging a tree and setting fire to it in the house. And I guess also you've got, you know, just the importance of fire. This is the thing that is going to see you through the winter. It's going to keep you warm. It's going to cook your food. If you don't have fire, you're in Real trouble. So I think there's lots going on with the Yule log that when we're eating our cake, we're maybe not associating it with the millennia of history that are behind the tradition.
2: And it's quite interesting because in the year, the Yule log often also has a role in that you take that bit of the Yule log that you're going to light next year and you often put it under the bed of the head of the household. And the idea there is that it's supposed to ward off fire and also lightning strikes.
1: It's not thing in medieval magic, isn't it? The idea that burnt wood fends off fire, that it can't be burnt again, but you're gonna use this log to relight the fire next year. It's strange.
2: You know, it's like putting gargoyles on buildings. So you put the monster on the building and then it scares off other monsters, I think is the same idea. It's this kind of portray. easy for me to say, <laughs> property in which you take the thing that's frightening and you somehow master it. And you know, You can understand why they might be a bit wary of fire being as they're just burning whole logs in the house sometime, I guess. Guys, I've got some news for you about what I think might be causing some of those fires. I don't know. Particularly when
1: you're in a wooden house, having a permanently burning tree strewn through the front door seems like a risk.
2: You know, I'm a little too risk averse for the Yule log that far. But, you know, if you want to present me with one of those Buche de Noel cakes, I'm very excited about that.
1: Yeah. Anytime you can turn a tradition into a cake, I'm all for it.
2: I've got a final tradition for you, Matt. A little less fire, but a bit of, I would say, rabble rousing, which is mummers and mumming. Just a fun thing to say in the first place. Do you know from whence this comes? I do not know. Tell me more. Okay, so mumming is quite fun because we know that we have references to mumming from at least the 13th century. So, like 1296 is the first time we have something written about it, and it comes from. Edward I's daughter's wedding, which happened at Christmas. And we know that they had mummers of the court and fiddlers and minstrels in order to celebrate this. So these were just kind of a part of the revels, both for the wedding and for Christmas more generally. Mumming in this context, we think sort of refers to as a mask or a masquerade. But mumming also seems just very, very specifically within this have meant playing dice. And what you would do is you would dress up in a costume to kind of obscure your identity. And then you would play dice with the host for a number of jewels that he sort of set aside specifically for this. And so you would say this is kind of like the purse that the house is putting out. And Christmas is traditionally one of those times when lords and kings and people were supposed to open their homes. So, you know, you would kind of have the serfs around for dinner. That kind of thing. Say, hey, thanks for making all of this possible. Uh, let me feed you your own food. You know, back to you. That sort of thing. But this is kind of going one step further. And now, ordinarily, for mumming at this level, you are going to be talking about members of the court more commonly. You know, they're not going to let a peasant come in and play dice for some jewels. But we know, for example, that in thirteen seventy seven, there were a hundred and thirty men who showed up mumming on horseback for a ceremony that Richard II held. So pretty intense mumming, but this then eventually shifts a little bit. And mumming often sometimes involves plays more specifically. And so we also have this term now called a mummer's play. And a mummer's play then also specifically involves a plot line in which somebody dies and then they are brought back to life. So again, you have people who dress up in these ridiculous costumes. And so maybe one of the things they do is they come into a house, they put on like a silly little play, someone comes back to life, hooray, and then they're kind of rewarded with the ability to gamble for their services, (laughs) which is great. Yeah, I think the
1: play is what I associate mumming with, I guess. I wasn't aware of all of that origin story behind it, which seems very much like managed generosity, no, you can come into my house and you can gamble and have some fun and you can win some stuff. The house is putting up a stake here, but it's very limited. You know, when the jewels are gone, the fun is over.
2: Exactly. And these mummers plays then eventually spill out into the normal world. And so you'll kind of have festival plays and this sort of thing that just happen out in the marketplace. There's a very famous Czech one from the 14th and 15th century, which is called Mastichka or the ointment seller and somebody dies and basically it's like there's a quack ointment seller who brings them back to life using varying ointments and things like that and you know it's very slapstick it involves a lot of farting and it's like this is really excellent highfalutin medieval humor. (laughs) but at the same time you know it reminds me a lot of what we do now with like the panto. Right? You put on a big over-the-top play and everyone shouts it's behind you and there's a lot of audience interaction. So we definitely know that plays of this type are happening, specifically at Christmas. It's just that you might also be allowed to gamble afterwards. Why not? Yeah, gamble responsibly. Do you reckon we can connect that in any way with
1: the idea of like the boy bishop at Christmas, this idea that people dressed up and moved outside their normal social spheres and wore masks and behaved... Like other people, because the boy bishop is another interesting, odd tradition that's all about turning things upside down and playing on the topsy turvy nature of Christmas.
2: Yeah, I think absolutely. You know, we see this with mumming, you know, the same thing with women's Christmas. And it's really a long standing tradition for Western winter festivals to do this. So, for example, you know, the Romans, they have Saturnalia. And with that, you know, the slaves get to be master of the house for the day. So, you know, this seems to be, I think, in a really rigid world, in a world that has these very, very clear delineations between the varying classes and the varying orders of society. For them, the ridiculousness of inversion is just high comedy. And it does remind me a bit of, you know, when you see, for example, in the Victorian era, the sort of fantasy that you see in things like, I don't know, Alice of Wonderland, where you have a really rigid society. So they say, oh, you know, it would be funny if things were just like a giant hallucination the whole time. And there were no rules. It just tells us a lot about where the boundaries are, because when they really cut loose, they're like, oh, what if things were the other way? What if the ladies didn't cook? Uh, You know, like, what if you could go into the house and win things from the Lord, not the Lord taking things from you? You know, it's hilarious.
1: Yeah. I think the boy bishop one always... I find strange in that it plays in the idea that the importance of children in the kingdom of heaven, but also the idea that you know those roles those societal structures, however rigid can be reversed, the meek shall inherit the earth, but they'll only inherit it for one day, don't get carried away. Remember your place tomorrow, have some fun today, but you know it's over then
2: and this is absolutely true, you know it reinforces these ideas, a temporary inversion. Allows you to just say, but those rules are in place for a reason, and we let you off. So, yeah, the boy was bishop. Come on. It's okay. Now, listen to the church again, everybody. There you go. That was your day off. It's like the one day of football, isn't it? You know, there's your chance to get all your physical stuff
1: out of your system. Here's your chance to get all of your republicanism or your kind of communism out of your system and then tomorrow we go back to the way things really should be. You all behave yourselves and you know your place.
2: We understand, members of the town, that students are really annoying. Well once a year you can punch them in the face.
1: So we've got a purge for physical crimes and we've also got a purge for societal crimes with the boy bishop and mumming and things like that. It's interesting that that's what they're concerned about. You're allowed this little window. But it is almost like those at the top recognise the frustration that must exist and they do recognise the unfairness in the system because they're willing for one day to overturn it and be like, you know, what if?
2: Yeah. And I think that also there is with that what if, what is quite interesting is that they say, and look, it's chaos. huh? If you let, you know, the slave is the master and the mummers are in the house gambling and, you know, the women didn't cook dinner. It's like, oh, and it's just so chaotic that this could never be anything other than a one-off laugh. And so it puts it back into the realm of safety. You know, it, it's supposed to also explain why this can be for one night only. How would you feel about being at a medieval Christmas with all of this stuff going on? Is that something somewhere you'd like to be? I think that I would, actually, because I think that this is one of the times of year that you can sort of find out the most about who medieval people really are at their core. If they are sitting around trying to subvert things, then it tells you what's kind of going on in their heads. This is some real deep level psyche stuff. So for me, you know, that's absolute gold dust, right? You know, I want to see them drag a tree into the house and then go punch their neighbor and then go, hmm, very interesting.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's all very deep. I was just thinking it'd be nice to have 12 days off work and a big party, but...
2: Bring that back. You know, this is one of my most old fashioned opinions is that we need to bring back 12 days of Christmas. Absolutely. And speaking of... Everyone here should go have a drink, not punch your neighbor, probably, but relax into the festive season. So all that remains is for me to thank you so much for being here, Matt. Thank you very, very much for having me on a Tuesday at the beginning of the week. Absolutely fantastic to be here. Thanks so much to everyone for joining us in this Christmas deep dive. And thanks so much to Matt for coming along on a Tuesday. Matt will be back on Friday as usual for your regular dose of medieval goodness, and I'll be back on next Tuesday, as always. This has been Gone Medieval from History Hit, and if you liked what you've heard, don't forget to rate, review, follow the podcast, and tell your friends about it. If you have any burning medieval questions, you can always reach out to us at gonemedieval at historyhit.com. Otherwise, enjoy your Christmas celebrations, and I'll see you next time.